Good day to you, and welcome to the NPFCC Messages podcast. We're glad to have you back. Or if you're listening for the first time, thank you for checking us out. This week's podcast is a message from our series through the book of 1 Timothy. Throughout this series, we're going to examine just how critical the message of the gospel is for the church. And while this may seem obvious to some, the truth is it's easy to get distracted by the noise and the trends of this world and forget what's most important. So these messages aim to draw us towards keeping the gospel first in our lives and in the church. So be blessed as you listen to this word. We're in week six of a series that we've been going through the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, 1 Timothy has been full of all kinds of craziness and lots of interesting stuff. And uh, this morning will be no exception. There's lots of stuff that, that just keeps bubbling up in, in, this, in this book. It's, it's the Apostle Paul um, who, for those of you who may not know who he is, he was a guy who um, went about to try to wipe out Christianity. He tried to, uh, to do it by killing Christians. And then one day, he met, uh, he met Christ. And on the road to Damascus, in a part of the world that is just blowing up right now, in that very place, all of this got started. And, and, and he met Jesus on the road, and it absolutely flipped his life upside down. Uh, and, and, and so Paul became, the guy who was killing Christians is now preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Life change. Life change is the most powerful story there is. And the Apostle Paul is the greatest example of life change. And, and he is now teaching his young protege, a young man named Timothy, who he has sent to pastor a church in the city of Ephesus. And when you think of Ephesus, you, you can think of like a large port city that's a lot like Las Vegas, right? Just lots of crazy stuff going on, lots of, uh, lots of pagan religion, just a lot of idolatry, a lot of economy, a lot of politics, a lot of craziness. Sounds like today, right? And, and into that, Timothy is a young pastor steps into a church that's seeing lots of conflict and a lot of false teaching. And Paul, throughout the book, is giving him instruction on how to help the church be the church in that community. How how to help people who are dealing with all the things going on in the world and how to center them back to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how to help them live together and be the example in that city and how to show the people in that place what it means to be people who live in the kingdom of God. And that's what the book of Timothy is all about. And the the key verse in the book is found in chapter 3, verse 15, which we read a few weeks ago, but it says this, Paul planned on coming to visit them, and he says, if I'm delayed... He says, I'm writing these things, basically, he says, so you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, how, how people ought to act, how we all ought to behave as followers of Jesus. And that's really what he's getting down to, uh, what it means to be part of Jesus's family, members of his kingdom, and the way that we, because we live in the kingdom of God, because we have a king and he's not of this world, because we live in this kingdom, we ought to stand out. We ought to be different. We ought to help change the world. 
And so that's what Paul's writing about. And so this week we'll be in chapter uh, six. We're going to do the first 16 verses. Then actually we're going we're gonna to slow the train down and we're going to hit uh, for the next couple weeks, the next few verses, verse 17, 18, 19, um, and talk about generosity and giving and lots of those kinds of cool things that are in there. But today we're going to tackle the first 16 verses. And like we've been doing, because we want to honor and respect God's word, um, I'm just going to ask if you'll just stand with me and we're going to read those 16 verses. Because like I said, the best thing we probably will do in this whole thing is uh, just hear, hear the book of First Timothy in its entirety as we, uh, as we gather. So let's... Uh, Let's take a look. It'll be up on the screen, or hopefully you've got your Bibles together. So starting in verse 1, it says this. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers, and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are things that you are to teach and insist on it. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the godly teaching, they are conceited and and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, Faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called to when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses and in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and the only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be the honor and might forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. Father, help us this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, to not just understand the words on the page, but allow them to penetrate our hearts and to, uh, to move us to action. Father, to be people who don't just know your word, but who live it. We love you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, um, we're going to dive in, and uh, Paul uh, dives right into some more, um, some more meaty stuff here. And the first topic, um, at, at this point in the book, Paul has turned from some doctrinal issues to more of a, like, um, he's kind of doing this big shotgun thing where he's just like hitting tons of topics, and so we've got a lot to cover this morning. Um, 
And he just starts throwing out all these different topics here uh, to Timothy as he's pastoring this church. And the first one he tackles here is the issue of slavery. Now, when you hear the word slavery and master, what, what pictures come to mind? You know, what, what emotions do you feel? In a room like that, there's going to be emotions that will be all over the board. Um, I was chatting with somebody earlier this morning, and uh, I was saying, you know, I, I can't help but hear the word slavery, and immediately, you know, I, I was in grade school when the series Roots came out, and, 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 and I watched that, and, and you know, and I, I just, I, I remember just thinking, whoa, like I, like I just don't know. And, and it's, it's just interesting. We all have these different views of slavery, and, and we all have different emotions that are attached to that. I mean, most of us picture an 1800s American view of slavery. Slaves who were kidnapped, beaten, and forced into labor. One, one race dominating over another. And one race of people seeing another race of people as less than. That, that's what we think of when we think of slavery. It was a little bit different in Paul's day. Um, to be certain, there was still that type of slavery going on in places. But I, I, I believe that, that the slavery that, that Paul is talking about was a bit different. He, he, he says, I want to read this again. Um, the, the first two verses, he says, all of you who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. And then he says, these, these are things that you should teach and insist on. Now, some have, some have absolutely misused these two verses in horrible ways. Uh, back in the 1800s, these very verses were used to promote slavery, to try to tell slaves that they needed to be good and, and listen to their masters. Some, some have abused this and told slaves, this is why you should submit. Do you see where God's telling you, you have to submit? And, and, and both of those ways, whether promoting slavery, telling slaves that they need to, that both of these things are absolutely wrong, especially if you have in your mind the American 1800s idea of slavery. And some people will, will, will look at this and say, man, I, the Bible, like, the Bible pr is promoting slavery and Paul's promoting slavery. And, and I've, uh, people, uh, I've even heard people say on this issue and others, like, Paul is wrong. And I just go, okay, whoa, 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 wait, you know, back the train up a little bit, right? Because the Apostle Paul, who we know wrote what he wrote, moved by the Holy Spirit, um, he can't be wrong in the Bible. Now, he could do things that were wrong, but he, he, it, what, what is written in Scripture is what's written in Scripture. What is wrong is oftentimes the way that we understand it, the way that we approach it. And, and so we need to understand that Paul is right. We just have to figure out what, what about this is true and, and, and then what doesn't apply. And a lot of it comes because we have a picture already in our mind when we approach this. 
In first, Paul does denounce the slavery that we understand as slavery. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, the very first week that we did this in chapter 1, verses um, 9 and 10, he says, um, we know that the law was not made for the righteous, but for law and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. And, and so, do you, do you hear the intensity? I mean, these people are irreligious, they are unholy, they are sinful, all these things. And who are these people? The ones who kill their fathers and mothers. That's pretty bad. The murderers. Um, and then he says, for the sexually immoral, those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, right? And for liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So he's already saying, hey, that is, that is counter biblical teaching. That, that, that is against God's sound doctrine. Now, in first century Ephesus and throughout the Roman Empire, slavery was a little bit different than what we imagine. Um, it is estimated that about one-third of the population of Ephesus, and this actually kind of holds true for most of the Roman Empire, that one-third of the population were, were slaves, um, the, the, Roman, the Roman government, had, there was a class system. I'm not going to get into all the intricacies of it. Um, we don't have time for that. But just to give you a little picture of it, they had this class system where there were the people on the top were the patricians. And they were the wealthy people, the senators, the landowners. They, they, they were, you know, today we might say they were the man. Right? They, they, were, the, they were the folks on top. And, and then, just under them, they had the, the people who were called the plebeians. They were the common citizens. They were the people who, um, they, were, they were basic business people. Um, they were people who were, you know, in charge of businesses, in charge of farms, in charge of commerce, in charge of all those types of things. And then, there was another class of people who were slaves, and again, the population of slaves was so huge, there was one writing that said that at one point they were going to try to make all of the slaves um, either have a particular mark or wear a particular thing. But then they rethought that because they thought, wait a minute, if we, if we mark all of them and then they see how many of them they are, they might take over, right? If you, if, if you really back up and go to the book of uh, Exodus, that's what happened there too. They said, hey, wait a minute. The slaves are starting to outnumber us. They might take over, right? So, th this is, this is, so that's one, what was happening in their culture. Now, the reason that people became slaves back in this time was possibly they were either prisoners of war, right? Uh, they were prisoners of war. And, and what, what would happen is the, if, if you know much about the way that Rome conquered the world is Rome did not just sweep through and just slaughter everybody. That, that, that's not even what they wanted to do. They wanted to, they wanted to appeal to people and expand this idea of what Rome was all about. And, and so they, they actually thought they could convince everybody to just like join them, right? Um, obviously, through a lot of power and pressure, but they would like, their typical way of fighting most of the time is they would just go surround a city. They, they would surround them and say, okay, well, let's see. We cut off your food supply and you cut off your water. Why don't you just join us? We really don't want to have to kill all of you, right? Um, the people who rebelled against that, they got the full force of what Rome was all about, right? 
But, and in those cases, they'd go in and just slaughter people. And the people who survived or the people who surrendered oftentimes, they would say, hey, look, you can join in and we're going to let you continue to live your lives out here. Now you're just going to be subservient to Rome, though. And so you got to pay taxes. you got to do these things. But that's what they would do. And the people, and the people who resisted, though, they would enslave them, Right? And so that was one, one group of people who were slaves. The other group of people uh, who were slaves in this day um, were people who were more known as like bond, what was called bond servants, which is actually the word that's used here in the text, this word doulos. And it was for somebody who couldn't pay a debt. Now, I'm not going to have you raise your hands this morning to show us how many of you are in debt, right? But if this is, uh, if this is an average group of people we're going to have a very large group of people in this room who are in debt. And let's imagine that you can't pay your debt. And you need to understand, they didn't have banking systems and all these things quite the way that we had. They did have some of those, but they were only for the very wealthy people. They didn't have those systems in place. So if you, if you um, had a debt that you could no longer pay, that you couldn't pay, then what you would do is you would make yourself go, you'd go before the person you were indebted for, and you would say, hey, I can't pay my debt. Um, can I, you know, I'll work for you to pay off my debt. And that was a form of slavery in that day. It was called being a bond servant. There was a bond over you, right? There was some, a price that was over you that you had to pay off. If you were a really, really horrible um, master, you would take advantage of that. You, you, you would make sure that that person got paid as little as possible so they'd serve you longer, right? Or you would find ways that they did something wrong and so that it didn't count towards paying off the debt. You would find all these ways to use your power abusively towards people, right, for your own advantage. If, if you were a good master in that time, you would actually let the person do their work, pay off their debt, and then they would, get, they would earn their freedom. And so that was one form. There was another one is that if you were just found yourself absolutely poor and destitute, um, this happened a lot when um, parents maybe were, were killed or something happened and kids were brought in and they, were, they just grew up in this kind of um, slavery. And then as they got older, they would become basically indentured servants. They would say, yeah, I want to stay on because in, if you had a good master, they treated you like part of the family. You just had work to do, right? Now, if you're a bad master, again, you abuse that power, okay, for your own good. And what happened here in this time of the world, and what was happening here is Christianity started to expand into the culture, which is really interesting, is, um, is something that we never saw really here in, in slavery in the South here, um, and was absolutely unthinkable to the world of the Romans was, is as these... Um, these poor people and some of these slaves became Christians as they became followers of Jesus, they're sitting in church next to their owners. Like, not in like a subservient way, but they're sitting in church next to their, next to their, you know, masters, right? The people who they're indebted to and all those things. They're sitting there with them. And, and the Romans are looking at that going like, whoa, 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 you people are all crazy. Right? And again, if we're people who are living out the kingdom of God, the way that we do things looks crazy to the world. 
Right? The, the world looks at us and goes, what, what are you guys doing? Like this, this isn't the way this happens. This isn't the way this works. And, and yet that was what was happening there. And so Paul, and through Timothy, he's addressing, he's addressing these people and he's saying, hey, as, as this is happening, there needs to be ways that we understand how we relate to one another, how we work together, how we love one another. And like I said, some of that was like just culturally way different than what was going on. But what we know is this in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. It says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so what he's saying is, is here is in the house of the Lord, in, in God's family, right, that we are all equal, now, the one thing that we have to understand, and again, this, this goes to our thinking and our understanding is, the minute that we hear that, somehow in our heads, as Westerners, <laughs> we think, oh, good, that means everything gets erased, right? That now, that absolutely, like, there's, that there's, there's nothing, there, there's, like, all of the things in between those relationships, like, it all just goes away. Or that all of the roles that people have, they just, they just go away. And that's, that's not true. Because you can still have, you can still be equal, but have different roles. It doesn't mean that all the roles got erased. And, and, and it never gives us license to take advantage of one another. In Christ, we are all one. But in Christ, it, it didn't change the fact that that some of these people were still indebted. It didn't change the fact that some of these people were still poor. It, didn't, it doesn't erase our, our roles and responsibilities towards one another. It did not wipe out their earthly debts. It didn't wipe out poverty. It didn't wipe out these roles of authority either. And we, as Westerners, we don't like authority. I was talking to somebody the other day who shared that they, they were somewhere and, and this young person came up to them and just said, I don't do authority, right? We live in a world where people just don't like authority. Now, if you're one of those people that push back and you just don't like authority, here, here's a couple things you, you might want to be reminded of. In the kingdom of God, there's, there's still roles where there is authority. I, I have bad news for some people. In heaven... There's authority, right? In heaven, there, there is somebody in charge, right? And, and, and so just being, just, you know, just having, you know, be, equality doesn't mean that roles and all these things just go away. And authority, here, here's the real reality. Authority is a good thing when it is used properly, when the person in authority is under the authority of God and uses that authority well for the benefit of the people who they're in authority over, right? It's not, authority is not a horrible thing. We, we've just come to believe that it takes away my rights, my privileges, my all these things, right? To have somebody, so we want to throw all of it off. It wasn't created by God to be a bad thing. It was supposed to be a good thing. And actually, the onus goes on the people in authority, that the people in authority are also under responsibility. And with that responsibility, is a huge weight to do it well. 
And I think as much as he's talking to the slaves, he's talking to these people who are, you know, the quote masters of the time and saying, you might have authority, but you got to do this well. And if you're a part of the kingdom of God, you're going to do it differently than the way we see the rest of the world living it out. And so Paul has already spoken, not only here in 1 Timothy, but also in the other books, like the book of Ephesians that he wrote um, to this church earlier. And he's, wrote, he's written already about roles and relationships in the church. He's written about, you know, church leaders, husbands and wives, younger and older people, you know, parents and children. And now he, th- he puts in there the relationship of masters and slaves. And, and in his teaching, he's, I, I think he's incredibly consistent uh, across all of his writings. We, we should never, ever, ever use authority in ways that abuse others or in any way diminish their value or their dignity. Authority is supposed to be used for the better of the people that are with you. A a role of authority does not make you better than anyone else, and it doesn't make anybody lower. And that's hard for us in Western thought to understand. We place everything in hierarchical hierarchical structures. But that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. In fact, as we know, Jesus flips that all on his head and he says, no, the greatest among you is the servant. And I don't know about you, but as I read the Bible, what what I really come to understand is this. I am called to be a slave of Christ Jesus. That I give up my rights. I give up a lot of things because he, like we sang earlier, he has my good in, in mind. And I trust him. But a lot of people, they get, they get mad at Paul because he doesn't just attack the system of slavery. And I, I wonder, I, I, I thought about that a lot. I prayed through that a lot. And I was just like, Lord, yeah, you know, Paul, you could have made it a lot easier on us if you just would have said certain things or, you know, done things a little bit differently. Um, but, but as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, maybe the reality is, is that Paul doesn't just outright just start attacking the system, right? Because, number one, because he's more worried about the kingdom than the earthly systems, right? The other part of this is, is if you would have just hit a magic button to, 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 to totally wipe away the system, it would have left a lot of people struggling for survival in this context. And and there is a fundamental difference, okay? And and this may ring true uh, even with our Western understanding of this. There's a fundamental difference between slavery and racism. Slavery is a physical, it's oftentimes political and economic system where racism is an issue of the heart. And the heart problem, the heart illness of racism is often what can cause slavery. And, and neither one of those things are, are right, especially in the way we understand slavery. And as we've discovered here in our own time, our own place, our own culture, our own history, is you may be able to abolish slavery with a man-made law, but the sin of racism can only be defeated by a changed heart. And that's what Paul is after. 
Paul knows that, hey, if we just go after this, if all we do is attack systems, if all we do is get political, if all we do is do this, if all we do is do this, he says, but we still got this heart issue over here that we got to deal with. We still have this heart issue about how we treat one another and how we love one another. He goes, what could we do as the people of God if we can be in the system but do it different than everybody else and demonstrate love in the middle of systems that other people can't get right? Then what do we do? We change the world that way. And so often we think that we have to attack it at certain levels when no, it all comes down to heart issues. And I think that's what Paul is doing throughout this book. He's saying it fundamentally all comes down to matters of the heart and where your allegiances are. If you, are you a member of the kingdom of God or not? And if you are a member of the kingdom of God, if you're a person who has at the center core of everything you do is that you are a part of the kingdom of God, it radically changes the way that you act towards everybody and everything. And so Paul is saying, look, folks, we just do it different in the household of God. And here's the problem, folks. If, if, we, if we get our economics if we get our politics, if we, get, if we get all those things and all of our systems and all this crazy man-made stuff, if we get that stuff in front of relationships and how we treat people, we will always end up abusing people. But if you embrace the fact that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, and guess what? If you're a, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you have a king, and dare I might say he is Lord, which means master. And you have a master, though, who is working all things together for your good. So he just, with one fell swoop, told us that it's possible. That it's possible for masters to act in ways that are loving and are in the best interest of other people. And that if the heart is right, then that impacts the actions. And so Paul is saying, hey, we, we need to make sure that we don't get all of this stuff in front of our relationships and especially our relationship with God. When he wrote to, Ephes to the Ephesian church in the book of Ephesians, he says it this way in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. This is like even more... Uh, uh, um, it's a little harder there. He says, with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Again, he's saying, hey, just remember, ultimately, you're obeying Christ, right? Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good that they do, whether they're a slave or they're free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours, so again, we're the same under Christ, we have one same master, one same king, says, um, is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. In other words, in, in, under Christ, you know, we don't have all that hierarchical stuff, right? We, we, we're supposed to love one another. And so I think what Paul is telling us here is whatever situation you find yourselves in, the cause of the kingdom, 
Living out kingdom life is the highest priority. It always takes precedent and it's higher priority than even the earthly systems that we live under. Why? Because Matthew 6, says, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and then all these other things will be given to you as well. Our problem, to be quite honest, most of the time we go after all these other things. And then if we can get those lined up, then we say, okay, now I'll, now I'll be okay in the kingdom. Now, now I'll put the kingdom, right? But that's putting the kingdom second. If it all works out for me, then I'll trust the kingdom. He's all, that's not the way, God's like, that's not the way this works. Put the kingdom first, and then all these other things fall into place. And, and he tells them, he says, hey, what's the reason that he was telling them this? He says, hey, He's like, hey, those of you who, who are in this bond of slavery, he says, um, if, if you know that you have a, if your master's a Christian, he's like, don't, don't like take advantage of that. Don't think, oh, I can just act how I want because my, my master's a Christian and he's going to have to let me slide and all this other stuff. He's like, no. He's like, that's not the way this works. Why? Because no matter where you're at, you don't use things, especially like the kingdom of God, for your advantage. Jesus certainly didn't. He didn't even consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So we don't leverage things to take advantage of one another. We serve one another in love and respect. So whatever situation you find yourself in, the cause of the kingdom is of highest priority. God's name is more important than my situation. And how I act should be in ways that point towards the kingdom and point people towards the kingdom. But instead, oftentimes we sit back and just complain about everything rather than figuring out how to live in such a way that we're saying, man, God has blessed me and I'm blessing others and I'm pointing people towards the kingdom because there is a better way. Both the master and the slave in this context are children of God. They are members of his kingdom. And what Paul is saying is this, behave like it. And I think he looks at us today too and he says, if you're a member of the kingdom of God, good, behave like it. You don't take advantage of others. You don't use any authority or any position that you have, right, to, to be abusive or to lord it over people that any kind of authority that's given to you by God, and that means if you're a boss, if you're a parent, it doesn't matter what role of authority you might be given, you never use that in ways that are abusive towards others. That's the way of the kingdom. And that's what Paul is after. All right, so that we get through the rest of the chapter, we're gonna go into high speed here, okay? So, the next thing he talks about is this idea of quarrels. He just says in verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with sound um, instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and a godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest to controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and, they, uh, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind. I was just like, that is the news. I'm just saying. <laughs> people who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. In other words, we think, oh, like if, 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 I, if I practice godliness, right, then God is going to give me, he's going to bless me. He's a, what you might even think of today is like the prosperity gospel. If I align myself right with God, he's just going to give me all this stuff. 
Um, but that's not the thing. What he's basically saying here is this. Don't give argumentative people space and don't, don't, don't allow them to dominate things. We, we damage relationships when proving that we are right um, about things that don't matter gets in the way of relationships. Uh, th- this was driven home to me. If you've been around here for a while, you may have heard me share this before. There's one day when I was having this issue with my mom, right? I, I mean, I-, I was a pretty know-it-all high school student, right? But on this particular occasion, I, I knew I was right. And I was, I was set out to prove that I was right. I had all kinds of evidence. I had all kinds of information. I, I was ready. I was right. And I was going about my proving myself to my mom. And then all of a sudden, this large hand got me right around the neck. Not in a, not in a hurtful way, but in just enough authority to turn me around. And this deep voice said, son... You need to remember that you can be very wrong proving that you're right. And that has always stuck with me. That even when you're right, the way that you go about that, the way that you use your rightness, right? Just like authority, the way you do that can be very, very wrong. Because we are people of the kingdom of God and we never use things. We never even use our rightness to abuse other people. It's just not, it just has no place in the kingdom of God. Because here's the reality that I learned that day. If you win an argument but damage your relationship, you lose. And that goes for every relationship you're in. If you damage a relationship proving yourself that you're right, then you lose. Because relationships are always more important. But folks, there's so much of this going on in our world. And it pains me to watch people, even, even, even people, both parties who claim to be Christians who are just abusing one another with their form of rightness. And folks, it paints a ugly, ugly picture to the world of what life inside the walls of the kingdom of God looks like. And so we need to get this right so that people are attracted to the kingdom so we can point and say, yeah, it's different over here we can actually kind of disagree and still love one another. We can, we can actually work together and have people, and, and, and here are people in authority, they, they serve people, right? They, they don't take advantage, they don't use their positions for their own good, they, they, that we love and serve one another. And that's the picture that we want to send to the world because it is so different and it is so godly. But there's so much of that happening in our world. In James 4, 1 and 2, it says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? I thought this was interesting. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And then I love it, it says, you desire, but you don't have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, you spoiled, rotten brat. Oh, that wasn't in the Bible, sorry. Ken's commentary, sorry. So you quarrel and fight. So where, where, where do all this quarreling, proving I'm right, so where's this come from? 
It comes from this horrible, ugly heart that says that somehow, if I can prove myself right, then I'm in authority or I'm better than or whatever, right? And it's all a mess. So he's basically, Paul's just looking at us and saying, stop it. Stop, you don't, you don't need to prove you're right. There's only one who truly is. And he's given us his word. Quarreling starts from a selfish heart. The difference between conversing and quarreling is all about attitude. I'm right, they're wrong. Right? And again, I used this quote in week one, I think it was, we talk way too much about the things that don't matter and we don't talk enough about the things that do. And some people go for financial gain, right? He talks about this. And this is not, you know, the, the Bible is not about your, like, this whole idea of, like, you, you can have, like, everything now. You can have your, even your best life now. I think as followers of Jesus, our life now is a life of surrender, right? That, that's, what, that's what he says now. Like, now you serve one another. Now you surrender to him. Your best life is yet to come. So you give it all, you put it all on the line, you give up your, your rights and all these other things so that you can serve one another well, love one another well, serve the kingdom well, and then, then the reward is even better. But that's how we're called to live. Not quarreling, but serving one another. Again, so we're, again, moving quickly, contentment is the next topic he talks about. In verse six he says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Y'all should memorize that. It's pretty easy. One little quick verse. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Why should you memorize that? As a general rule, we Americans are pretty discontent. You know how I know that? One word. iPhone 15. (laughs) Right? Now, I don't say this by way of pride, but... My iPhone 7 is still doing everything I need it to do. It's still working fine. I watched a YouTube video and put a $20 battery in it. And it's working great. And all I need this little baby to do is, you know, make some phone calls, get some texts and some emails. I do like the map feature, and I like the music, right? But there's a whole lot I don't need this thing to do. And I'll tell you what this thing does not and will never do is this will not define how hip I am or how up with the times I am or how cool I am or who I am as a person. Right? Now, for all of you who have iPhone 15s, Lord bless you. Right? (laughs) Yours probably broke, and mine will someday too, and I'll get a new one, right? But, here, but, but here's, here's the whole thing about that, right? We just, as a general rule, we're not content people. It goes on, he says, for we brought nothing into this world, we could take nothing out of it. We had four children. I watched all of them come into the world. No one brought anything with them. <laughs> nothing. Okay? Well, they did, and it was not fun to clean up. And you've never seen a U-Haul trailer behind a hearse, have you? So you're not taking anything out. 
And so God is just, so, so again, he, he's just saying, hey, you, can't, you have, didn't bring anything in. You're not taking anything down. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. This is hard for us who live at the end of the rainbow. Because we have so much. And we have to back ourselves up and ask ourselves this question all the time. What are we truly content with? And then those of us who learn to be, who were working at content, we got to be very careful that our contentment doesn't slip into complacency either, because that's a whole other thing, a sermon for another day. And, and so he says, because we're not content, then he goes on, he says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and they do many um, foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into, a ru- into ruin and destruction, Okay? Your pursuit of more stuff, your, your pursuit of contentment because you are discontent, that, that never leads to a good place. And, and we're not people who are content. Um, the, and it says here that we fall into a trap. It's kind of interesting. I was doing a little research on this. There's this thing, I don't know if you've heard about this. There's a psychological term called um, hedonic adaption. Hedonic adaption. Uh, it's in your note thing, the, the spelling. And it comes from hedonist, which is selfish, right? Then adaption. And, and here's the concept. It's our tendency to quickly return to our baseline of happiness, right? So it, there's a picture that's up here. And it's, it's see the, the little yellow line in the middle? It's our set level or our baseline of happiness. And when good stuff happens, we kind of go up, right? We're like, woo, this is good. Okay, I got a new phone. That's really good. Until the next one comes out. Right? Like, that's really good for a little while. Or I got a new car. Woo, that's awesome. Until the new car smell goes away. Right? That's why over at the car wash, you can have new car smell put back in your car. So, but you, 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 like, if you're happy for a little bit, and then pretty fast, we drop back down to our base level. How, same thing with bad stuff that happens, right? Something bad happened. I got hurt. Something happened. Here, I lost some money. I lost a job. But then pretty quickly, we're, we adapt into the fact that we, we bounce back to our baseline pretty fast as a general rule, okay? Um, one, one writer put it this way. He says, um, we start out small, and then we get a little promotion, and we're thrilled. My job, my first job paid me $28,000. I got a promotion to $35,000. I thought it was, I thought I was a high roller at that point for a couple weeks. But then over the course of my career, I earned $50,000, $100,000, and so forth and so on. None of which ever seemed to be enough after a couple months in my new salary bracket. Very quickly, we as human beings become used to each new standard of living and we want more. Psychologists call this hedonistic adaption. We get used to upgrades very quickly. If you own a boat or a cool car, you'll be looking um, achingly at a yacht or a newer version of your sweet ride pretty soon. Then he goes on to say this, that um, happiness, our happiness baseline, if you can bring that picture back up, the happiness baseline for most of it, it does not change much right? We bounce back to it all the time. It, it becomes pretty set by the time you're an adolescent. And that thing stays pretty, pretty, pretty much the same, your level of happiness, right? Now, it, it, 30%, that, and this is, again, psychologist speaking, it says this, 30% say that a lot of that happens with, with the way that you were brought up. 
Um, 10% is your current circumstances, really. So there's just kind of like a little 10% like bump here and there. And then 40% is all about your attitude and your choices. And then, then I thought this was fascinating, is that, and I saw this in a couple different um, articles, um, that there's these three things that you can do that can actually help adjust your happiness level. How many of you want to be more happy? Anybody? More happy? Okay, good. Some of you need to be more happy, right? <laughs> Guys are in the sugar coma this morning. So, um, yeah, you got to, like, if you want to bump up, but here's the three things. And, and these, were, these were secular psychologists, people who, like, you know, did all this, a bunch of, but listen to what they said. Number one, gratitude. Learn to be thankful. Reflect daily on how you have been blessed. I would say write one thing every day down. Start a list on your phone. There's another use for this thing, right? Listen, every day, write something that you're blessed by, something that you're, you're thankful for. The second thing to boost your um, level is relationships, right? Your relationships are more valuable than anything else, so invest in them, right? Who would have known that we were right in the church about how to make you happy? Get in a life group. You'll be happier, when I see grumpy people walking around church, I go, yeah, you know, they're just not in a life group. <laughs> so you ought to get in one, right? Um, so um, relationships, super important. They can, they can affect your happiness. L- lastly, and I, this is a great one, kindness. An act of kindness. In other words, taking your eyes off you and doing something for someone else will always help bump up your your happiness quotient. And if you do those three things, they can actually begin to adjust your level of happiness and your baseline, which I thought is awesome. Because true wealth is an internal condition. And the sooner we make up our minds that we have enough, no matter what our circumstances are, the happier we'll be. So, the, the last thing, we're gonna kind of fast forward this, um, is the last thing is pursuit. Um, and he, he says this in, in verse 11 to 13. But you, man of God, flee all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. A bunch of those are fruits of the Spirit, you might recall. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And in the sight of God, he gives everything and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So I'm just going to give you a couple quick things. Um, he gives four imperative statements there in this passage. The first he says is flee. The first one is flee. What, what are we supposed to flee? We're supposed to flee all the stuff that drags us down and, and causes us to act in selfish ways where we have to be right and we start quarreling with people, where we're abusing other people where we're all those say flee from all that stuff get rid of all that and then he says then the second one is he says pursue and that's that, that's a pretty powerful word in, in the original language this is a very powerful word it literally is like you need to chase after let, let me let me ask you a quick question this morning what are you chasing after Most of us are chasing after something. Some are chasing after a new position. 
Some are chasing after more financially. Some of you are chasing after a relationship. Some of you are chasing, we all, we help things that we're chasing after. And if you were to make a list this morning of the stuff that you're chasing after, I, I, I wonder I wonder if you would stop and write down righteousness. Are you chasing after righteousness? Are are you chasing, chasing after godliness? Are you chasing after faith? Love? Endurance and gentleness? Did, the, did those make your list this morning? Of all the other stuff that, that I read uh, as I was studying this, um, every time something just like jumps off the page at me and says, um, hey, Ken, before you can preach this, you got to get this right. And, and this is the part that got me. Because I started to ask myself that, that very question, like, what am I chasing after? Our world has a lot of stuff on the list that you should chase after. Everything from as silly as a new iPhone to, you know, climbing a corporate ladder to whatever it might be. And again, jobs and things, those, those things can be good, but what are you chasing after? And is that at the very, very core of who you are? Are you chasing after being a child in the kingdom of God where you're pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness? Are those the pursuits of your heart? Can we all just admit this morning we got a lot of work to do? And if we all know that about each other, doesn't mean we need to show each other a whole lot of grace. And then he goes on, he says, the next imperative is this, fight. Fight the good fight of faith. In other words, wrestle this like your life depends on it because guess what? And then he says, take hold. Take hold of eternal life. What a gift we've been given in Jesus Christ. That the ultimate price that was, for there, that was for us to pay, we didn't have to pay it. That we just get to take hold of the eternal life that was purchased for us. If we will just trust him and not trust the things of the world, if we will say, yes, I'm a child of the kingdom of God and all that that brings, all the good stuff and all the work that goes into being part of the kingdom. And if I'll embrace that, if I'll trust him, then I take hold of eternal life, which is the greatest gift of all. And he tells us all we need to do to take hold of that is confess. And what are we supposed to confess? Well, it's interesting. It ties right back down to where we started this morning. It says in Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 9 and 10, it says, if you confess... With your mouth, it's, uh, this version says declare. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what's the word? What's the word? Yeah, sounds a lot like, mas sounds a lot like master. 
and they're interchangeable. But guess what? We are all servants of the King of Kings. And he does not ever use his authority to abuse you. He always uses his authority for your good. And and he loves you and he cares for you in ways that we can barely even begin to comprehend. But he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And who did this for us? Well, he tells us in the last couple verses. He says, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, which God will bring about in his own time. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly, right? And he says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who, is alone, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be the honor and the might forever. And all God's people said, what kingdom do you serve this morning? Is it the kingdom of me or the kingdom of him? What are you pursuing this morning? Will you let him be who he already is and that's Lord and Savior in your life? He gave it all so that we could and so that we could inherit eternal life. And that's why we have communion every week around here. We, we never want to forget what he did for us. And so if you have your communion this morning and you want to take this little piece of bread, it represents Jesus' broken body that he gave for us so that we could be his children and be part of the kingdom, the family of God. So let's take that together. And the cup that represents his shed blood with which he forgave all of our sins. So let's take that together. And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your incredible gift of grace. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you, Father, that you have invited us into the kingdom. God, would you help us live like we're citizens of your kingdom, children in your household, trusting you, loving one another, and pointing the world to the true way to do life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the NPFCC Messages podcast. If you'd like to support the work of our church, head to npfcc.org give to make a one-time or reoccurring gift. For more information about us, you can always check out our website at npfcc.org. Again, that's npfcc.org.